always a wonderful thing to be together, and uh, thank you for being here, and I pray that just worshiping the Lord, just singing about His goodness, His greatness has uh, refreshed your souls in, in ways that are beyond probably description or comparison. So uh, thankful for the chance that we have to worship a God who is worthy. If you're a guest with us, a special welcome to you. Uh, it is always a wonderful privilege to have you uh, come out and be a part of our service. The one thing we would ask you to do, other than just being uh, at home and comfortable, is to fill out a visitor card. looks like this. Uh, they are on the tables in the front and back. And just drop that in our offering. Let us know if there's some way we can pray for you uh, or be of help to you in your spiritual walk. We are going to go to John chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. Uh, feel free to take your Bible and go to John chapter 20. At the end of our service today, we are going to be celebrating communion together. If you've never celebrated communion with us before, just want to give you a little bit of an understanding of what we do, a little different than maybe other churches you've been at, or maybe you haven't been to a church that does this. Um, we celebrate communion at the end of the time that we're looking in the Word of God. I'm just going to ask you, wherever you are, just to leave the stuff that you have in your seat and to form a circle around the room with us. Uh, you may want to just steer clear of being right in front of the speakers because you, know, you might get your ears blown or whatever. But other than that, if you can just form a circle around the room um, and uh, we're going to partake in communion and, and I'll kind of give you more description about that. If you're here today and you say, well, I don't know about taking communion. I don't even know what that means or I'm not comfortable with it or I've got something in my life. and I, That's no big deal. Um, what we do, the first thing we do is pass around cups. When those cups come by you, if you just want to observe, just let the cups go by. Just pass them on without taking one. Nobody's going to embarrass you or make a big deal of it, uh, but we would love for you to stay with us and observe communion today. All right? So John chapter 20 is where we are. Uh, this week and then two weeks from now, we'll be finishing up our study in the book of John. Um, and it has been an interesting journey as we've been going through that. And, and then we're going to come back to, uh, as we get to November, you're not going to want to miss uh, the second two weeks of November because we're going to be talking about uh, who we are as a church. Um, what are we about? And, and you know, sometimes as you're doing stuff, you're, you get your eyes fixed on what you're doing and you lose sight of the bigger picture. And, you, and I really feel like right now, that's kind of what we're battling as a church is losing sight of the bigger picture. Not that we don't believe in it, not that we don't know it, but it's, it's, it's lost its grip on our soul a little bit. And the reason that I say that is because it's when we lose our grip on why we're here and what we're about, the core of who we are, we start to get frustrated. We start to get irritated. We start to get weary. We start to get discouraged. We start to act like the purpose of what we're doing here is, is very small. But let me just tell you, the purpose of what we're doing here is not small at all. It's enormous. It's bigger than you can imagine. And God is at work even this day in ways beyond description. And so I would invite you to just believe that. And then I would invite you to make sure you're here second and third week of November as we dig into not only who we are as a church and, and what we're about and what we're shooting for and all that, but what's ahead of us. Um, and so come out for those days. All right, John chapter 20. Now, when we first were married, um, we had one vehicle. We had one car, and it was my first car. It was a 1979 Pontiac Bonneville, which I thought was the, every, the, the best car ever. It was awesome. It was a wonderful car, but it's because it was my first car. Um, but it was the only car we had. And so I worked up in Cherry Hill at an engineering firm. And so when, when Dana needed the car for the day, what she would have to do is drive me to work. And the way that I got up to work, I went up 42, and then I got off on 130. And I would go up 130 towards Cherry Hill. Now, back in that day... 
1.30 included, on my way to work, two traffic circles. Dana's from Oregon. You know, coming to New Jersey, that's a little bit of a shock anyway. You know, we're kind of we're kind of nuts as drivers. I've driven in the South. I've driven in the West. And, and those people are really nice when they drive. You know, they like obey the laws and they don't go around people. And just, they're nice, you know. I don't even know if they know that they have a horn, you know, out there. But here it's a little different story. And so it was a culture shock coming to New Jersey. But on our way to work, I remember the first day that we drove to my work. And, and I'm driving and Dana's in the passenger seat. And, and, and we hit this circle. And she says to me, what is this? And I, you know, it was early morning. I'm used to driving, whatever. I didn't think anything of it till she said, what is this? And all of a sudden it was like I saw through different eyes and I saw how this, you know, this road with three lanes and you're driving along and everybody's standing in their lane turns into chaos immediately, right? And, and you're trying to navigate around this circle or whatever. And then it dawned on me that she's got to drive home through those. And I was like, oh, this is not going to be good. So I better give her some advice, right? And so the advice that I gave her, I don't know if it was the right advice or the wrong advice, but the advice I gave her was drive like you know what you're doing, right? Have some confidence and just be aggressive and bold and don't, don't be intimidated. And secondly, don't get stuck on the inside because <laughs> you'll be driving on that circle all day. Around and around and around, because nobody wants to let you out. You just, you're just in the middle, you know. Can I get over? And everybody's like, Rrr. As we navigate life, we can hit those kind of moments where what seemed like a neat and orderly life all of a sudden is in chaos. And what, if, what we find ourselves is if we're not careful, we find ourselves driving in circles around and around and again. It seems like everyone else knows what to do. It's just you. You're the only one who's lost right? You're the only one who's overwhelmed. You're the only one who can't seem to figure it out. And all these people around you who seem to know what's what are not that interested in helping you. You're like, you know, you put your signal on and, hey, can I get out? And they're like, don't even see you, you know? What is that? You know, you seem to know what you're doing. I don't. Can you help me? And nobody seems to care. One of the ways that we get to that is what we're going to look at today. The reality is all of us get stuck in our faith. There's no missing out. There's nobody you can opt out of this wonderful experience of finding yourself stuck in your faith, feeling like you're going around in circles and you don't know how to get out. One of the most deflating and dark spots we get stuck in is when doubt seems to swallow up every bit of our faith. Have you ever been there? It seems like every time you think about your life and about God, all you have is questions. And you can't seem to ever figure out how to believe again. Today, we're going to look at the story, maybe the most famous story in the Word of God about doubt. So much so that that his name popularly is Doubting Thomas. And so I'm going to ask you, what can we learn from the story? What happens to us when doubt shows up? And what does it mean about our connection with Jesus? And I hope that when we get done this story today, that you know this. Number one, that doubt does not mean you're a bad Christian. Doubt does not mean that you've stopped believing. That doubt is not anything but that you're just a regular, normal human being. Number two, I hope that you get this from today. This is something I'm going to try for us to, to learn together. And that is, so what do I do about doubt? How do I have some remedy for that to get off the circle and not just keep going around and around? 
And so I hope that we can find both of that as we look at this story today. So we're going to start at verse 19. Originally, we're going to get on just to verse 23, and then eventually we're going to get through the end of the chapter. So uh, John chapter 20, verse 19 down to 23, here's what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right, so what happens here? We are on Resurrection Day. We are on Easter Day here. And it says, Later that same night. So, What we've read, what we saw before is Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. And what was Mary's response when Jesus first met her, when Jesus first talked to her? She didn't get it, right? It took her a minute to get it. Later on in the day, we see Jesus appearing, not in the book of John, but in, in, I think it's the book of Luke, we see Jesus appearing to two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, probably Cleopas and his wife, Mary, who is said to be at the foot of the cross. So these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they first meet Jesus, they don't quite get it, do they? Seems like it's a theme of the day. And now Jesus shows up and appears to his disciples. And what, is his, what are his disciples doing? Did you find out what they were doing? Did you read that? <clears throat> what are they doing? They're hiding. They are locked up in a room away from everyone. Why are they hiding? What does John tell us that they're hiding because? They're afraid. They're afraid. Now, if you read with us last week, what you know is that when Mary saw the Lord, she went back and told the disciples that she had seen Jesus. Jesus gave message, this, this message to Mary that he was alive, but where are the disciples? Locked away in fear. Now, I'm not criticizing them because it wasn't that unreasonable for them to be afraid. Like three days ago, they killed their leader, right? The, the Jews killed the disciples' leader, put him on a cross, This is the man who raised people from the dead and healed the sick and the lame. And when he needed money, he went fishing. This is the man who took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. This is the man that they killed. So I'm not saying it's unreasonable for them to be afraid. Oh, and by the way, there's a rumor spreading this day. And the rumor has the disciples at the center of it. The rumor is that the, the reason that the tomb is empty is because the disciples came and stole his body. And so they are the target of blame for breaking Roman law and possibly going to find themselves in deep water and in trouble because they're going to take the blame for the missing body. And so they're afraid in the upper room. And so Jesus shows up. Jesus appears through the locked doors. Locked door, no problem for him. Locked heart, no problem for him. You know, he just has no boundary. And so in he comes into the room. And when he shows up in the room, they're afraid. They are stunned. The, the normal human reaction to surprise, to the unexpected, is shock and confusion. If you're not stunned, let's say Jesus walked into this room this morning, just appeared on stage next to me. If you were not stunned, surprised, shocked, something's wrong with you. You might need to wake up or something like that. Because that's, that's what we do, right? That's what our human reaction is. That's what the disciples did when Jesus showed up in the room. But then it brought 
confusion to them and, and even fear to them. Luke tells us they thought it was a ghost and they were afraid. Fear, shock, confusion. All of these things can lead us to doubt. What I know about you at the times and the moments in your life when you have struggled with doubt, you didn't invite it. You didn't ask for it. It just shows up, doesn't it? It just appears out of nowhere. And it's a lot of times just like this. Jesus showing up for the disciples should have brought them what? What should Jesus' arrival have brought them? Joy, peace, power, strength, encouragement. What did it bring them? Fear. Huh. How about that? These are the apostles. These are the ones who turned the world upside down. If they get afraid at the unexpected, I guess it's okay if you and I do too. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to them when they're afraid at his appearing? Peace be with you. Jesus says, hey, let's calm down. It's okay. It's all right. I want you to understand. I want you to know that it's going to be okay. And then he does something. It says, verse 20, after he had said, peace be with you, he says, hey, take a look. Here, look at my hands. Hey, look at my side. Why is Jesus doing that for them? What's he doing there? Here's Jesus recognizing that it is going to be a difficult thing for his disciples to get over the idea that he died on Friday and now he's alive again. And so what do we do as human beings when we have a hard time understanding something? We start to make up a story in our heads, right? Do you, have you ever done that? You ever made up a story when it's hard to understand? Have you ever made up a story of what you think somebody else is thinking and then found out later you were really wrong? Right? That's a terrible thing to do. A lot of pain could be avoided if we stop making up stories about things we don't understand. But we almost can't seem to help ourselves. So Jesus shows up and he knows that they're trying to figure this out. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going to help you get to the right story. I'm going to show you that this is not a hallucination. You're not just all imagining this. I'm not a ghost. I want you to touch me. I want you to see that I'm the same man who was on the cross. I want you to see the scars from all that stuff. I want you to know. I want you to digest. I want you to realize and grab hold of the fact that this impossibility is true. He doesn't say to them, what's wrong with you, you bunch of idiots? I've been talking for three years about being dead for three days and rising again. What's wrong with you? That's sometimes what we have to say to ourselves. But that's not what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, peace be with you. Hey, take a look at my hands. And then again, verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. In our struggle with fear and doubt, Jesus is patient. And Jesus finds ways to help us deal with it, to digest it, to work our way through it. He finds a way to show us that what gives us a reason to doubt can work its way towards a reason to be settled in our soul. And that, that, that pathway is not removing fear, is not removing doubt, but it is this. It is giving us something to believe, something we can be sure of. And I want you to keep this little act, interaction in mind when Thomas shows up in our next reading, all right? 
Now, before we move on, um, Jesus says some things to them, and we don't have time to really dig into all of this. Um, but essentially, what he does is he kind of discusses what's coming. He, he breathes on them and says, I am sending you, receive the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission, go and spread this to all the world. The day of Pentecost is coming when the Spirit will, will indwell them and come and be with them. And so he's kind of t- describing some of the things that are coming. As a matter of fact, the word Spirit, uh, the word Holy Spirit or the word Spirit in Greek is the word breath or wind, which is pretty cool. So Jesus breathing on them is to signify you will receive the Holy Spirit. That is, that is a promise. That is a gift. That is something that's coming. And then he talks about, you know, forgiving people's sins and all that stuff. Let me just say before we move on, because this has been abused over time. Basically, what he's saying to them is that you will lead the church, that you will have a message to share about forgiveness. This is not in any way, shape, or form the foundation for a man forgiving sins before God. In other words, you do not need to go to any man to get your sins forgiven. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. First of all, it would be one verse in all of the Bible where he says, go to somebody and get your sins forgiven. Secondly, there is not one example in all of the Bible of anyone going to someone else to ask God to forgive their sins. Not once. You read the book of Acts. You will not find one time where anybody went to an apostle and said, could you please forgive my sins for me? And so someone on behalf of God forgave their sins. doesn't happen. So if that's what he's teaching here, the apostles blew it. It's not what he's teaching here. What he's teaching here is essentially that you have a message of forgiveness. And what you say, how you describe, how you, you offer forgiveness to people is the path. And if they reject that, they reject forgiveness. What you will proclaim is legitimate, And what you tell them is not uh, saving faith, will not be saving faith. You will have the message of truth and the message of redemption. So I wish I could get more into that, but we got to kind of move on to what we're going to look at today. Um, I just didn't want you to be confused about that. All right, so verses 24 and 25. Off the heels of this appearance, uh, someone's not there. So verse 24 says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. This is how Thomas earns the name Doubting Thomas. Now Didymus, just side note, means twin. probably means that Thomas had a twin, whether brother or sister. But the reason that we, we see Thomas having not been there is not given. We don't know why he wasn't there. So let's imagine a little bit. Maybe he's out getting something, some food. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's scared and he doesn't think being with the disciples is the right thing to do. But it could be, and I think maybe the most reasonable explanation is this. He simply isn't there because he is struggling with doubt. Because what he's thought was so real, what had seemed so certain, suddenly seemed foolish. Have you ever been there? Where what you thought you knew, life threw something at you, and suddenly it felt like you couldn't quite get back to that certainty anymore. You can't even remember what it was like to believe. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you are like a charter member of that town of, I can't quite figure out how to believe again. So how do we get there? 
Life tells us believing was a mistake, that we were wrong, that we're in danger, that we need to run away, that we need to cover up, that we need to hide. It also tells us to turn down the volume on what our faith is saying and to turn up the volume on everything else, how we feel, what people are saying, what it looks like is coming, how's it going, what what do we think is going to happen. We turn up the volume on all that and we turn down the volume on faith. Life convinces us that that's a solid move. And then, as we struggle with it, what we do when we live in that swirl, we start to find ways to be isolated and alone. Have you ever noticed that? So Thomas isn't there. So if he's struggling with doubt, if he's struggling with fear, what's he going to do? Some of us, when we struggle like that, here's what we do. We back away from everybody and everything. And it helps us not at all. Right? I never have talked to somebody who was really struggling, really under attack in their faith, really just trying with all that they could to hold on to something and they just couldn't seem to get a grip. And they backed away because it's the natural inclination who came back to me and said, Pastor Mark, the best thing I ever did in my life was isolate myself from all my brothers and sisters in Christ. Never once have I heard that. You know what I've heard a lot of times? I was struggling I was dry in my soul. I couldn't seem to find my bearings at all, but I just kept coming. And you know what? God used my brothers and sisters to carry me through. I've heard that a lot. Haven't heard the other any times. But that's what we do. We back up away from people. It's understandable. We feel vulnerable. We feel foolish. We feel like we don't want anybody to see our mess. We start to choose to separate ourselves. And so my warning to all of you is this. When seasons of doubt show up, when seasons of spiritual dryness show up, beware of the natural pull to isolate. I'm not saying that you have to show up and be the center of the party. You have to be Mr. or Mrs. Sociable and and everything's got to be wonderful and everybody's got to know that you're okay. I'm saying sometimes your step of faith is just to say, I know what I feel, I know what it looks like, but I also know what I'm sure of. And I'm sure that God has prescribed me to come out and be fed, to come out and be with. I may not have a word I can say, but I'm going to be here because I trust that God has a pathway for me through this swirl, through this storm. But there's news for Thomas. Thomas has isolated himself, but somewhere along the way, he bumps into other people, some trusted friends, people he's walked through this whole thing with. And they say, Jesus is alive. We have seen the Lord. Great news, Thomas. All of your troubles, all of your fears can melt away. Jesus is alive. Is that true? That Jesus is alive? Yes. How much good does it do, Thomas? Zero. Here's what doubt wants to do to you. Doubt wants to take the spiritual realities that could make you alive and whole and healed, make you Feel everything that God has for you fill you with His blessing, with His joy, with His life. All of that is real, but doubt wants to say, no, let's act like it's not. Let's have no benefit of that. Let's just walk over here and be disconnected from it. Does that sound like a strategy for good living? Does that sound like uh, something that's wise? Or does that sound like something that we want to try to find an answer to. You know what I mean? In other words, we don't have a say in when these doubts and fears show up in our lives. We don't get to say, no, I don't have time for that. Sometimes they just chase you down. But what we do have a say in is whether or not I buy it, whether or not I believe it, 
whether or not I put it in the driver's seat. Have you ever put doubt in the driver's seat? Yeah, you know what it's like being on that circle, isn't it? Round and around and around. And it goes around in your head at night and it goes around in your head in the silence of the day and you're driving down the road and around and around and around. So Thomas says, unless I put my fingers in the nail prints in his hands and I put my hand in his eyes, you see what he said? I will not believe. I will not believe. I'm not going to be a fool again. I'm not going to be stupid. Who's driving Thomas's life right now? Isn't it doubt? I mean, his friends have told him, hey, listen, you can believe again. We believe again. It's okay. And they've been through the same journey and experiences he has, and they've found a way out, but he's not feeling it. You ever been there? Your friends are all like, no, no, it's going to be okay. And you're like, I don't think so. They're trying to share with you, and you're just bouncing off. You're not just physically isolated, alone, and away. You're disconnected from them. You're insulated from their testimony, from their encouragement, from their input. You found a way through doubt to discount what others have to share. And that's one symptom of letting doubt and fear control you and dictate your experience. Jesus sends a message to Thomas through those who saw him, but he can't seem to break free from doubt. Now, he is not the only one who doubted. The Bible tells us in Luke that when the women came back from the tomb, that the disciples did not believe the women. He's not the only one who doubted. He's the one who gets the name. But doubt was prevalent that day because it was unbelievable. But Jesus wanted us to know that we have the opportunity to believe. When Jesus showed up for the whole big group of disciples in Luke, he says, why are you doubting? When he shows up, we were with Thomas. He says, Thomas, believe. Jesus' invitation for you is, listen, doubt is a real battle but let's find an answer to it. Why? Because what happens from here with the disciples? All of these disciples who doubted, all these disciples who are locked away in an upper room, scared of what might be coming, what happens to them? Is that the end of their story? Or are we just about to find out the biggest and greatest things that have ever been done in the history of the world for the cause of Christ from these scared, doubting people? Your doubt is not the end of your story. It doesn't have to be. Doubt can be the door to the greatest things you've ever done, the stuff that will resonate into eternity. Why is that? It's because of this. It's because doubt is the place where we rightfully question what we believe, where we rightfully question what we believe. You need to question what you believe. You need to ask those questions and face those questions. You need to process and digest that stuff. You can't just shrug it off and wipe it away. You need to face it. And sometimes that doubt comes because circumstances tell us that what we thought was true is now false. Or we doubt because of people's reactions, because of people's input, because of words, because of their criticism. And doubt is a natural reaction to that. But what it does functionally is it makes me take another look. Doubt is in a sense, in its essence, taking another look. But the difference between it being the launching point for great things or the heaviest weight you've ever carried is the difference between whether we let doubt run our lives or whether we let doubt finish its work so that I wind up more sure than ever of what I already know to be true. It may be different than what you believed before. Some of those questions may have changed a little bit of what you believe, but you've got to get to the place 
where you come to conviction about what you know for sure. You might not know everything for sure. I doubt any of us know much for sure. But there are some things I know for sure. Are there some things you know for sure? That's where we got to dig our roots down. That's what doubt takes us back to, those core things. Isn't it by faith that we are saved? And faith is that place of being sure, of saying, I know what I believe, and I will live like it is true. In every way and in every sense, faith is still the way that we are saved, even from doubt. You can't stop the doubt from coming, but you can choose how to respond to it. Will it paralyze you, causing you to stay in the circle, stuck? Waste your time, waste your energy, waste your life? Or will you choose to answer your doubt with what you genuinely believe? The answer to doubt is not removing it. The answer to doubt is to have the conversation from the depths of your soul. Not about what happens a lot of times is we don't get down to conviction. What we get down to is what we are considering as true, what we're thinking as true, what we're feeling as true. And we can mistake my feeling as conviction. I feel like we're in danger. I feel like I'm in danger. And if I live like that's a conviction, it's running my life. But what do you believe about God? Do you believe he's your protector? Do you believe he's your defender? Do you believe he's good? Do you believe he loves you? That doesn't mesh with what you're acting like you believe is true, does it? So you've got to come to what do you really believe? What are you going to hold on to? We answer our doubts, but they don't go away. You can still find all kinds of evidence for that stuff. As a matter of fact, on Wednesday night, we're talking about three things that remain. Love is the greatest of all, right? And we're talking about how love dictates our actions, our reactions, our attitudes and all that. It's a wonderful, wonderful study. And I don't know almost anybody in this world who doesn't think that love is the fabric of a good life. You know, uh, love and, and caring and concern for one another. But the other two things are directly connected to it and they are faith and hope. And both of those deal with conviction. What do you know for sure is true? What will you believe for sure is true? What will you live for sure, like it's true. Those are choices. Just like love is a choice, those are choices. What choice will you make? All right, then verse 26 and 27. Actually, verse down to verse 29. Here's what it says. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, the first thing that strikes me here is, Jesus waited a week? Huh. You think it's because he was too busy? You think it's because he was like, well, that stupid Thomas, I'm just not ready to talk to him yet. He's just getting on my last nerve, so I'm going to... Why did Jesus wait a week? Huh. Best answer that I could, as I considered this and thought about this, was kind of like, Jesus knew that Thomas needed some time. He was giving him the opportunity to choose to believe. And Thomas wasn't getting there. So he waited a week, and then Jesus said, okay, that's enough. Now we're going to go at it again. 
We're going to come back to this doubt. We're going to come back to this fear and we're going to address it. And when, I, when Jesus shows up, he seems to know exactly what Thomas had said because he offers exactly what Thomas asked for. What's that tell you about Jesus? He knows everything. But he didn't come and say, Thomas, what's wrong with you? Thomas, why are you such a loser? Thomas, I'm so disappointed in you. Many of the things that we say to ourselves or we imagine God saying to us when we're struggling in doubt, he doesn't say to doubting Thomas. What does he say? Hey, if you need to put your fingers in in holes in my hands, come do it. If you want to put your hand in my side, come do it. He meets him right where he is. Jesus is not about throwing rocks at people who are in a battle against doubt. But Jesus comes and reassures him, offers what Thomas needs or says he needs to believe. But Jesus doesn't end with just put your fingers in my hands and in in your hand in my side. He says, the last words, stop doubting and believe. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement. But here's one of the things I know from that. Jesus says, stop doubting, meaning it was potentially possible that he would keep doubting. Huh, really? Have you ever seen God do something and doubt it anyway? Have you ever known for sure in your heart that God was speaking to you and said, well, I don't know that that's God. When we operate from our doubt instead of our conviction, we operate as people who are vulnerable to just keep it spinning and spinning and spinning and not getting anywhere. You're working really hard. You're walking really heavy. It's a really difficult way to go. But you just keep going that way because you let doubt run your life. Jesus says to Thomas, here I am. Now, now, stop doubting and believe. Meaning, or you could choose to keep doubting and not believe. I wonder how much it takes for you to believe. It tells me that doubt is not because of a lack of evidence. It is an experience of being stuck without deciding which evidence to believe. What will you believe? What evidence will you believe? Do you believe that there's a God? Do you believe that he's great? Do you believe that he's good? Being trapped in doubt does not happen because there are questions and because there are mysteries. We have those all the time. You even had those questions and those mysteries when you were sure. When doubt takes over, when doubt traps us, it's because we start to act like we're better off with our doubt in charge. We're acting like our doubt is a truth teller instead of a doubt stirrer. We start to live like being careful and always looking to be sure is the way to go, is the advantageous way, instead of operating in the very thing that brings the power of God. What brings the power of God in your life? Faith, right? Jesus says, stop doubting. It is a choice. The answer to doubt is to believe, not to avoid doubting. Jesus doesn't say, you should never have doubted. He just says, Now stop doubting how to believe. And that is a common theme in Scripture. You've got a choice to make. You go back to Joshua 24, and Joshua says, you've got to choose who you will serve. It's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Top of Mount Carmel, Elijah with the prophets of Baal, he says to the people of Israel, how long will you 
stay stuck between two opinions. If Baal is God, serve him. But if God is God, serve him. Choose. You are not better off in the middle. You are better off in faith. You are not keeping your eyes open to all possibilities. You are getting stuck in doubt and draining the power of God. You are in misery. This is what defines this kind of misery. It's not, why are you in between two choices? That's just life. You're in between one or the other. But the question is, how long will you stay there? And so today I want to call you to a conclusion, to a conviction. Look inside your soul and find out what you believe to be true and then live it. What do you know for sure is true? Don't live paralyzed. Don't live dried out. Don't live wondering what's next. Determine what your soul knows to be true and then live that in faith. Or live in doubt and just keep turning in circles over and over again. Thomas makes that choice. He says, my Lord and my God. He declares his decision. And Jesus doesn't say, good try, Thomas, but you don't believe enough. He says, you believe. If you feel like your faith is diminished because of your doubt, Jesus doesn't think that. Jesus just says, I'm glad you believed. He says that there are people blessed that have to believe without seeing, but he didn't say Thomas had to believe without seeing because Jesus showed up and showed him. He says, Thomas, believe. So maybe today you have every reason to doubt. Life has been hard, confusing, overwhelming. You've got all kinds of reasons to live stuck in fear and doubt. You've got questions that seem unavoidable and inescapable. But the question I have for you today is, are you tired of them enough to make the choice to just stand up and answer your doubt with what you believe? Can you choose to believe even when you don't have answers to all the questions? Isn't that faith? Are your doubts making faith feel impossible or driving you to grow in your faith? Are you asking the questions with honesty and coming to an understanding of what you know for sure in your souls? Or are you letting doubt just make you not sure of anything? You know, I read a quote this week that said, I think it was from John Piper, it said, you know, God is doing about 10,000 things in your life at every moment of every day, about 10,000 things. You're probably aware of about three of them. Doubt says, well, I don't know the other 9,997 things, so I don't know. Maybe you just need to know Him. Are you sure of Him? And if you haven't been for a while, isn't today the day where we come back to being sure? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And so we're going to use our communion time this morning to kind of make that moment of decision. So I'm going to invite you wherever you are to leave your stuff where it is and to form a circle around the room this morning as we celebrate communion together. All right, we're going to start by passing some cups around. So uh, like I said before, if you just want to observe today, just let those cups go by. When they get to the end, when they meet up, wherever they meet up, just put them down 
uh, on the seats in front of you, and uh, we will come get them after the service. So as those cups come around, that's how we'll start today. Um, I left off the last two verses of John chapter 20, and I want to use that right now, right here. Here's what the Apostle John writes at the end of John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you get that? These are written, why? So that you have answers to every question that comes up in life. Is that why this is written? That you may believe. Your belief is not founded on the fact that you have a complete understanding that you have an answer for anything that shows up in your mind, that doubts can never touch you. Your faith is not based on that. Your faith is based on these things that have been written. And I believe them. And did you see what that does? That you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you will have life through His name. There's only one way to life. It's through believing. Jesus gave us these symbols about his sacrifice on the cross, the bread. This is my body, and it's broken for you. Broken for you. Do you believe that? What's that tell you about your Lord? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you, poured out for you. What's that tell you? As we take this today, I would say, listen, if you've been in a battle with doubt, with fear, Let this be the moment like where Thomas put his finger into Jesus' hands or side. Let this be your nail prints. Let this physical act bring you back to believing what you already know is true. Let this be the answer. This is what I know. I may not know all the answers to that, but I know this. My Savior died for me. My God sent His Son because I was lost. And if I believe, I believe with all my heart that I will have life. Do you believe that? Let this be the answer. This day, a step of faith, a declaration of faith that I will believe. I will believe. Gentlemen.